Take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 8. We're traveling through the Gospel of Mark, and we've encountered a number of questions that all sort of ask a larger question. The question is, who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man? And as we've gone through Mark's Gospel, in the first eight chapters of Mark's Gospel, People ask a lot of different questions. Listen to the kinds of questions that we read about. Chapter 1, verse 27, someone said, What is this? A new teaching with authority. Talking about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 7, Why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chapter 2, verse 16, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Chapter 2, verse 24. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 6, verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Chapter 7, verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? It's all essentially the same question, couched in different circumstances. The question is, who is this man? Why are you so different, Jesus? How can you do these things? How can you teach like this? Who really is this man? Well, today we come across the answer to the question. Everything in Mark's gospel leads up to the end of chapter 8, where we are today. And the disciples will finally figure it out, who this man really is. Up till now, there's been confusion, there's been darkness, there's been misunderstanding and shadows and parables, and they didn't really get it all. They were confused, they were spiritually dull, they were dense. They just just didn't get it. They see him walking on the water, they think it's a ghost. He feeds 5,000 people. He feeds another 4,000 people. And then what's the very next thing that happens? They're in a boat with one loaf of bread, and they say, what are we going to do? We only have one loaf of bread between the 12 or 13 of us. They just just didn't get it. Well, today they're going to get it. Today they're going to understand who Jesus really is. And we begin with a, a story, one last miracle before we have this revelation of who Jesus really is. And it begins in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. And here's what we read. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him, Jesus, to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, there's a number of questions that I've got about this story why did jesus spit on the man's eyes i mean that's a little odd right well 
I think that he spit on the man's eyes to remind the disciples of something that happened in the previous chapter of Mark's gospel. Do you remember when Jesus encountered the deaf man? And what did it say that Jesus did? Jesus spit in the man's ears. And so this should be a clear sign to the disciples that there's some parallels here between the deaf man before and the blind man now. In fact, that's not the only parallel. There's a lot of parallels. Number one, other people brought these men to Jesus. Secondly, these other people begged Jesus to heal the, the deaf or the blind man. And then Jesus, what did he do? He touched first the deaf man, and then he touched the blind man. Then Jesus led both of them to a private place away from the crowd where they could be alone. And then Jesus spit first on the deaf man and now on the blind man. And the men, by the way, both had previously had that kind of ability once before. In other words, the, the deaf man, we know that he could have spoken before. We, well, he, we know that he spoke a little bit, but he, he just didn't make any sense. And if he, had, if he had been deaf from birth, he wouldn't be able to speak at all. But Mark tells us that, he, that his speech was distorted, essentially. And so there was a time when that deaf man was able to hear, but now he can't, and his, his speech over time has slurred to the point where no one could understand him at all. Same thing with the blind man. The blind man previously had been able to see. How do we know? Would he have mentioned trees? I see people, but they look like trees. How would he know what a tree looks like? Well, obviously, he had been able to see once before, but something happened, and he couldn't see anymore. And now... He's in a worse spot than he was before. There's a lot of parallels between the deaf man in chapter 7 and the blind man here in chapter 8. But here's the real question that I have. Why did this healing come in stages? I mean, here's Jesus. He's God. Couldn't Jesus just say the word and the man would be healed immediately from his blindness? Why did it occur in stages? I'll tell you why. This blind man was a living parable to the disciples. Specifically, he was a parallel or a parable to their spiritual dullness. What do I mean by that? You'll see in just a minute that they come to understand who Jesus really is in stages. Just like Jesus brought sight to the blind man in stages, Jesus is about to bring spiritual sight to the disciples in stages. Not all at once, but eventually they're going to get there. So the disciples are about to see who Jesus is, but even in the future, they would understand more clearly who Jesus is. And so that's the question, who is this man Jesus? And we read about that in verse 27. Let's continue. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And we'll talk in a minute about why that place is important. On the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. 
another is one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter gets the answer right. He gets the answer right. And you see this parallel played out with the previous story with the blind man. First, Mark describes the situation. Then what happens? The blind man had partial sight. He could see, but not clearly. Well, so did the disciples. When Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Uh, You're more than just a man. You're either John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. That's who people say you are. Or some people say you're Elijah, resurrected from the dead. Or you're one of the prophets, resurrected from the dead. You're something special, Jesus. That's what people say. You're a little bit different. You're not like us, exactly. And then Jesus made it more pointed. Who do you say that I am? And just like how Jesus had brought clear sight, perfect sight, fully restored sight to the blind man, now Jesus allows Peter, the spokesman of the twelve, to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And Peter says, you are the Christ. What's that mean? It means the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one that we've been looking for, the Savior of Israel. That's what that meant. That's who you are. Now, I've got a question. Would anyone on the face of the earth come up with that idea on their own? No, they wouldn't do it. Man says that Jesus is a myth today. Or man says, okay, maybe he wasn't a myth, but people sort of added stories to who Jesus is. Let me ask you, would any human on earth ever come up with this idea that God himself would become flesh? That God himself would live a life without sin? That God himself in the flesh would allow himself to die? On a cross. Why? So he could have fellowship with his creation that rejected him and put him on that cross? No man would ever come up with that. Sure, in ancient history, you'll find an occasional story here and there of of a God becoming flesh. But you never come across in ancient history or today any kind of man-made story that says that God became flesh and gave up his life to redeem that which rebelled against him and rejected him. That's too far. No one could conceive of that kind of love. But that's who Jesus is. And Peter, he's on his way to understanding that. He's not there yet, as we'll see. But he's on his way. So the disciples, they start to figure it out. Jesus insists, I want to know now who you say that I am. And Peter responds, you are the Christ. Now, I told you I'd come back to this idea of them being at Caesarea Philippi. Why is that important? 
in ancient, ancient days, years, hundreds of years before Jesus and the disciples were there at that town. Baal was worshipped there. You remember Baal from the Old Testament, one of the false gods, child sacrifice, all that kind of thing. Baal was worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. And there was a shrine to Baal, this false god. Later on, that area uh, was called Peneus or Peneus. And what it was, it was a place to worship the Greek god Pan, the false god Pan. Another shrine was set up to him. In Jesus' day, and the disciples in that day in which they were all living and having this conversation, it was common for the emperors, the Roman emperors, to be considered the gods walking among us. They like to take that title that we are, we are gods. We're not mere men. We are, we are gods. You know, like some politicians today think that. Uh, but they, they thought that of themselves, that they are gods on earth. So here at this place, which historically had what people believed was a place where the divine dwelt with man, Jesus makes it clear he is the God. This is the place of revelation where it was revealed to Peter who Jesus really was. The actual God in the flesh walking among us. And so what did Jesus do? Verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now this seems odd, doesn't it? Peter, you're right. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Don't tell anybody. Why? Why couldn't he tell anyone? Peter and the disciples weren't ready for it yet. They were ready to understand who he was, but they weren't ready to tell anyone else about it. I want you to think back in Mark's gospel or even the other gospels. Who else identified who Jesus was correctly? The demons. Jesus would cast a demon out of someone, and before the demon would be cast out, the demon would speak through the man and say, We know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. The demons had good theology. They were right. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And what did Jesus say? Shut up. Don't say another word. Why? Because it takes more than just knowing who Jesus is to be on his team. I need you to understand that. It is not enough for you and me or for Peter or anyone else to simply get the theology right of who Jesus is. Jesus told Peter and the disciples, be quiet. Don't say a word to anyone because they weren't ready. They were not yet ready to be partners with him in his mission. And that's the second half of Mark's gospel. The first half answers the question, who is this man? And it's finally answered by Peter, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, but don't say anything. Because you haven't yet learned what my mission is. And so from this point on in Mark's gospel, Jesus focuses his ministry on teaching the disciples 
about his mission. You have to remember that Jesus had some 1,200 days, maybe, to spend with these disciples. About three and a half years. That's all he had to change them from fishermen and tax collectors and all of that into his apostles for his church. Every day that went by was a one less day that Jesus had to get these guys ready. And now they finally come to the point, after, after a long period of time, they figured out who Jesus is. But they're not ready yet. They've got to be on mission with him. And for them to be on mission with him, they have to understand his mission. What's the mission? Verse 31. He began to teach them. That the Son of Man, that's, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And verse 32, and he said this plainly. He said this plainly. That's the mission. Guys, my mission is to suffer to be rejected, and to die. That's my mission. And after that, I'm going to rise from the dead. He said it as plain as Mark did to us when we just read that. What was Peter's response? Verse 32. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Someone taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. How dare you, Jesus? You're wrong, Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. He began to rebuke Jesus. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Well, this is the second time that we encounter Satan in Mark's gospel. The first time was at the very outset of, of uh, Jesus' ministry. After Jesus is baptized, what happens? He goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And who's there? Satan's there. Tempting Jesus to find a shortcut. Tempting Jesus to eat some, eat some uh, bread, make it, make it from rocks into bread and eat it. To glorify himself. Somehow, don't go through this path of suffering. That was the temptation at the very beginning. Now, Satan appears on the scene again through Peter. And it's essentially the same temptation. No, 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 Jesus. You don't need to go through that suffering. You don't need to go die on the cross. You don't need to go be raised from the dead, Peter says. You're wrong, Jesus. I rebuke you, Jesus, Peter says. Jesus sees it for what it is. This is Satan trying to throw me off track. And so in the strongest terms possible, he rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You see, the suffering of Jesus on the cross was God's plan from the foundation of of the world. Look back in verse 31. It says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer these things. He must 
suffer. There's no other way. There's no plan B. There's no other path. There's not an easier way. All roads don't lead to heaven. There's only one way, and it's the way of the cross. There's a lot of churches, by the way, today that take a lot of different paths. But there's only one way, and it's the way of the cross. That's the only way a man can be made right with God. That's the only way that our sins could be atoned for. Any other path is from Satan. And Jesus rejected every other path. He rejected Peter. And so Peter is left with a choice. He's left with a very clear choice. Either on the one hand, he could continue to rebuke Jesus and he could try to be a hindrance to Jesus, an obstacle to Jesus to keep Jesus from the cross. And if that were to happen, if Peter made that choice, that he would be a hindrance to Jesus, Jesus would have left Peter, left him behind. Jesus would not have allowed Peter to derail his ministry. You see, God has a plan. God has a way. And we either get on board with Him, or God will continue with His work. The other choice Peter had was to be a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? Okay, Jesus, if you, if you don't like this idea of me rebuking you for choosing the way of the cross, okay, I'll follow you. I'll listen to you. I'll continue to follow you. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and gen sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here is Peter's problem. Peter got it right about who Jesus was. You're the Christ. But Peter got it wrong when it came to what is Jesus' mission. That's why Jesus rebuked him. And here's the lesson for us. You can't have any part of Jesus unless you choose to be on mission with him. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to die to yourself. You have to give up your rights. How many of my rights? All of them. You've got to come to Jesus on God's terms. You have to be on mission with him. Otherwise, it's nothing more than get behind me, Satan. Jesus was patient with Peter. Peter had a lot to learn, as did the rest of the disciples. By the way, he's patient with us. 
We don't get it right away. And that's okay. But what I don't want you to go away from this building thinking is that because your theology is right about Jesus, then you're right. Or because you know who Jesus is, then you're on mission with him. Those are two different things. Knowing who he is and being on mission with him are two separate things. Jesus calls his disciples to die to themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Where would that lead, God? If I follow you, what does that mean? Don't know. It means you just say yes to God. Whatever you want, God. I say yes. I submit. I surrender. Yesterday at the, um, at the training for the, all the missionaries going on the Spain trip, before the trip started, they had a slide show going on, and they showed all these different workers at IGO Global, employees. And they gave a little statement underneath why they like to work there. And all of them were different, but there was this one young lady who had a statement underneath her picture. And she said, I love working at IGO Global because... I love seeing God ruin the plans of young people and replace them with his plans. And I thought that's an interesting way to put it. Because sometimes God has to do some hard work. He has to break us in order to mold us into what he wants us to be. God loves you enough to break you. He loves you enough to mold you into what he wants you to be. But he also loves you enough if you want to tell him, no, I'm not going to be on mission with you. There will come a point in your life where God will say, okay, I'll leave you alone. And that's the scariest point in your whole life. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul, Jesus said. What are you going to do with your life? Are you going to follow after your dreams or are you ever going to say to God, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll do anything you want. I'll do anything you want. I yield myself to you because I think it's the best 